Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Jonathan Abrams, co-founder and general partner in 8-Bit Capital. Before starting the firm, Jonathan previously was a longtime angel investor and entrepreneur and founded both Nuzzle and Friendster, the latter to which he helped to grow to over 100 million users and where he met his current partner at 8-Bit, Kent Lundstrom. Jonathan also co-founded Founders Den with Zach Bogue of BCVC in 2011 which quickly became one of San Francisco's earliest and most popular startup work and event spaces. I think you'll really enjoy hearing Jonathan's story and how he thinks about all aspects of seed stage investing. Now let's get into the episode. I'm thrilled to announce that this episode is brought to you by Tactic, the first software solution for venture capital portfolio forecasting and planning. The platform is rapidly increasing efficiency and data-driven decision-making for GPs, and already works with over 150 venture firms. As somebody that's seen hundreds of models and spreadsheets, it's time that managers now have the ability to dynamically build and maintain portfolio models. The solution enables portfolio construction in minutes and allows managers to share their portfolio strategy with prospective limited partners. Tactic also offers advanced analytics to assess probabilistic outcomes and continuous reserve planning. Check them out at tactic.io. That's T A. CTYC.io. Jonathan, it's so good to see you. It's great to see you too, although it's been kind of weird not to actually see you in person at like a First Republic party or an, an event at Founders Den. I know. I think every time you and I have talked, it's actually been in person. And of course, now with, with COVID, all of this is two dimensional. But I'm so happy to have you on the podcast finally. I know we've been trying for a while. Let's actually start with your career in tech and what led up to starting 8-Bit with Kent. So, you know, unlike some people who, who on podcasts who say they fell into VC, I don't think I really fell into VC. I started off in Canada coding since I was 10. I've, I, unlike my partner, Kent, I've never taken a business class in my life. And I studied computer science in college and then started my career working at Nortel doing telecom software. Then I realized the future of communications technology was not telephones. It was the internet, right? So I moved to Silicon Valley to work for Netscape. Stayed here ever since. Started several companies, uh, one of which was Friendster. And it was during the Friendster days when I met Kent. So we were at some event. We were giving advice to other entrepreneurs. And at that time, Friendster was already growing fast, but we didn't have an office. We didn't have venture capital. I mean, it was still super early. Uh, This is a period in time where like, still people had no idea what social networking was or meant. But Kent thought it was really interesting. Angel invested. And then he just started helping me out without being asked and was adding so much value that I asked him to join the management team. And we then reunited to do another company called Nuzzle. And then after selling Nuzzle, we started Apic Capital. And along the way, I had done a lot of angel investing. I co-founded Founders Den. I uh, invested as an LP in a bunch of funds. And Kent and I have really been helping other entrepreneurs for a long time. So in some ways, I never really thought I would be a VC. I still think of myself really as an entrepreneur. But in some ways, it was a natural evolution for us because we've been investing and in, in helping other entrepreneurs for a long time. And this is really just institutionalizing stuff we've already been doing before, but now doing it full time. I'm going to come back to actually a few things that you just said, one of which is thinking yourself as an entrepreneur that you know, in this case, you're you're writing checks, you're helping companies versus actually starting the companies and, and writing code. But when you did start 8-Bit with Kent, and you guys had worked together at two different places with Friendster and Nuzzle, but at the time, there were so many seed funds that had already formed. And you and I have talked about this. Maybe there was a thousand when you started 8-Bit. 
a lot of the questions that often come, does the world need another seed firm? Did you guys see a particular white space that was missing from the seed environment at the time you started? Nobody probably is saying, boy, we need more funds, right? But I think in some ways it was a very natural thing for us to do. And, you know, we were sort of inspired by friends of ours. Uh, Jim Scheiman, who worked with us at Friendster, had started Maven. He was the first VC in Zoom. And Zach, who started Founderstand with me, went off to start DCVC, which has now been incredibly successful. So we saw our friends doing it, and we really like helping other entrepreneurs. And our previous angel investments have performed very well. And entrepreneurs have told us many times that they really valued our feedback. So in some ways, it really made sense. Those are the reasons why we did it. But it probably would have been easier for us to raise a fund 10 years ago when there were not so many funds. Maybe our timing wasn't perfect. But during the 10 years prior to starting APA Capital, in addition to being entrepreneurs, we were investing, we were running Founders Den, I was uh, you know, investing as an LP in funds. We were, I think, doing a lot of stuff that we were really learning from, all of which was very relevant now to us running APA Capital. And you know, I think it, it is true there's a lot of funds now. But you know, I look at it from the entrepreneur's perspective. You know, you running now a startup, you're an entrepreneur, and congratulations on your your Series A for Allocate that happened this year. Uh, that was led by M13, right? Correct, yep. That, that fund is, I think, around six years old. And you also have Basis Set as an investor. They were a member of Founders Den. So these are newer firms. And I think clearly for entrepreneurs like yourselves, these new firms are exciting and are relevant. When, when we look back at the history of venture, I've had this conversation with a few LPs where the last 10 years of venture has actually seen more innovation and change than the prior 30 years, one of which is the advance in the institutionalization of the seed environment and what type of options founders have. And you, you guys both were operators, angel investors. Can you maybe just extract some of the insights that you had from working at Friendster and Nuzzle? in terms of what type of product that you wanted to build for founders? I mean, I think you're right. There's been a lot of change and a lot of innovation and venture. And I think the the era when there would just be X funds that have been around for a long time on Sand Hill, just waiting for entrepreneurs to come to them, I think that era is just over. There's people moving around more. There's new firms. There's more innovation. I think a lot of the innovation and venture, though, has been driven by entrepreneurs. If you think about Y Combinator, AngelList, uh, Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz, I mean, a lot of these have have been started by entrepreneurs who have a certain perspective by being on the entrepreneur side of the ecosystem of how maybe they'd like the way that startups get funded to evolve. So I think a lot of the innovation and venture has actually been driven by entrepreneurs who have entered into the venture industry. For us, I think it's it's kind of funny, all the noise about so many funds. I mean, there's funds now that are like $4 billion. So our first fund is $40 million. So one single $40 billion fund is like 100 APA capitals. I don't really think maybe there's too many seed or, or pre-seed funds, because if you really think about it, 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 it's really a small amount of money compared to these crazy, crazy huge funds. And I think in some ways what we're doing at APA Capital is really just classic early stage venture capital. And you can call it micro or seed or pre-seed or the names keep changing, but it's really just classic early stage capital. I mean, we're an institutional fund. I mean, we have full-time GPs, we have LPs, you know, we're really rolling up our sleeves and helping these companies. And you know, the new thing is almost the, the multi-billion dollar funds is almost a newer thing than what we're doing. I mean, what we're really just doing is really classic early stage venture capital. But I think Kent and I learned a lot from Friendster and Nuzzle, and, and it's it's definitely informs how we do things as investors. And there's a lot of lip service to being that term people overuse, founder-friendly. 
But I think when you've been through the experiences that Kent and I have been through, when you've had, when you've worked with many of the top VCs and you've founded multiple venture back companies and you've been a CEO and you've had both good experiences and bad experiences, I think we have a completely different perspective than somebody in venture who's, who's never been a founder or CEO before. What is your definition of being founder friendly? We had this converse, debate, it was a conversation and a debate at a, a dinner recently that I had with 15 GPs. Everyone had a different definition. Given your background as a founder, a consumer of venture capital, what does it actually mean in your eyes and Kent's eyes to be founder-friendly? Well, I don't really use that term. I think it's kind of a, a silly term. I think it's a little bit pain lip service. Like, it sounds cute. It's alliterative, founder-friendly. But what does that really mean? So, you know, if you, if you have had the experience we've had, I mean, at Friendster, the company went through six CEOs in six years. And when you've been through some of the things that we've been through, I think you understand how venture can go well and how it can go wrong and what entrepreneurs want and how the relationship can be good and how it can be dysfunctional. We understand that at a deep level, and it's not playing sort of performative games and trying to say we're founder friendly. So I don't even like that that term. And, you know, Kent sometimes says, first, do no harm, my partner Kent, um, which is like, I guess that's the Hippocratic Oath, because if you're just not making entrepreneurs' lives worse... That alone sometimes makes you better than some other investors because there is some bad behavior out there. I mean, just something as simple as getting back to an entrepreneur with a quick yes or no, even if you don't give an elaborate explanation, that alone oftentimes puts you above average. In our case, prior to starting AP Capital, the thing we had heard from a lot of entrepreneurs was that 15 minutes of, of, of advice from me and Kent was more useful than the, you know, six months with their VCs. And I think we found now that the feedback we're getting from our entrepreneurs often is that we're their most useful investor. But, you know, I think it's, it's when you say founder-friendly, I just think you're sort of trying to, to sound good, but maybe you don't even understand. I mean, I think, I think an, an investor who's never even worked at a startup, they don't even know what they don't know about the entrepreneur's lives. And we actually don't even think that we're necessarily drastically changing the course of the startup outcomes. But if we can make an entrepreneur's life easier, because we understand how stressful it is to be a founder and CEO, if we can help them, if we can make their life easier, they're going to appreciate that. And you know, you're now, you've gone from being a working at a bank to being a startup founder and CEO. Is it exactly everything you could have imagined or, or has it been an experience that you couldn't really couldn't have even fully grasped until you did it? There's no substitute in actually doing it. In fact, all these preconceived notions that you have going into it, a year later, you look at and say, okay, half of those things are completely incorrect. And you go through the journey. For us, it's not about it being quote unquote founder friendly. It's being experienced entrepreneurs who've actually been there. We've been founders, we've been CEOs, and we've been helping and mentoring other entrepreneurs for, for many years before we even started Apa Capital. And I think what we found is that uh, when, when we're working with our portfolio founders, we are able to provide help to them that, that means something to them that they're not necessarily getting from their other investors, even though there are obviously lots and lots of choices these days. Going back to something that y- you just said, and, and, and you're right, like until you actually go through something, you don't really understand all the things that go into running a company, running a firm. You have run companies before. You've been an angel investor and a, a successful one. But there is a mental shift when you start running a firm and managing third-party capital. Can you talk about that shift of going from an angel investor to now having LPs that you now have to perform for? What were some of the mental shifts that you had to make as you really launched the firm and started investing? The funny thing is I think back to when I made that leap from being a software engineer to being a CEO. 
and never having had even had managed people before. That was a big shift. That was a big leap. And that's actually a shift that many of our portfolio founders have to go through because we invest in companies very early. And some of the founders that we've backed are experienced entrepreneurs that we've done a long time, but some of them are not. Some of them are, are first-time entrepreneurs. And so, and many of them coming from technical backgrounds. So that that's, that's a you know, a journey they have to go through. I think that was a much bigger leap than Kent and I going from being CEOs who'd also been investing in the same stage and sector. You know, we've been investing very early stage in software startups for a long time. And we'd run companies and we'd invested in funds. and We'd mentored entrepreneurs. The leap to go from that to being full-time investors was a much smaller leap. And we, of course, had to learn things. And a lot of people have taught us stuff. And we did a lot of homework. I think we were pretty prepared for doing it. But I think it was, it was you know, a smaller shift than some shifts I've made in the past. And, you know, you mentioned raising money. We had already raised money, right? So we hadn't, we had, didn't have LPs, but we had investors. And I think it's kind of funny because I think there's some LPs who would have preferred us to have that sort of apprenticeship in venture capital that we might have had if we'd worked at a big VC firm, like some emerging managers do, which we didn't have. But as former CEOs and entrepreneurs, we had raised money. And we had, importantly, as, as CEOs, we had been fiduciaries. So we had hired and fired people, built businesses, managed P&Ls, run boards, been fiduciaries. So I think a lot of that, we're running a different kind of business than a software startup business, but it's still a business that we're building from scratch. And we've done that before. And we've been fiduciaries. So I think some of it, we were certainly well prepared for. Probably the biggest difference, something I had not done before, was doing follow-on investments. That was not something I'd really done as an angel investor. Since I was busy as a startup founder and CEO, and the angel investing was something I, you know, I was really spending a very small amount of time on. If you look at sort of the seed environment right now, and people are still raising, I mean, I'm still seeing funds, and there's now so many different flavors. You have the nano funds, the solo GPs, rolling funds, institutional seed funds. There's a lot of choices and a lot of flavors. And yes, there are people that are continuing to spin out of large established funds with some training. And, you know, oftentimes they are getting institutional capital because of the pedigree of those funds that they came from. But there are a lot of the people that have started funds that came from an angel background, operator background, maybe doing both at once. And one of the questions I often get from these GPs is if I do want to go out and raise an institutional level firm from institutional LPs, what should I be thinking about as the steepest parts of the uh, learning curve? And I'd be curious, you mentioned reserve planning and thinking about doing follow-on. What have been some of the, the steepest parts of the learning curve of going from angel to full-time investor? Well, I think a lot of people think, boy, somebody who's not done this before couldn't possibly understand the the, math, the fund math and the portfolio construction. And I think those are things you can learn. We learned from a lot of folks. I mean, Mike Maples came to Founders Den and, and showed us all his mathematical analysis of his following investments. And we listened to lots of podcasts and read lots of blogs and, and studied those things. And actually, many funds have completely different strategies about how they do their reserves and their follow-ons. And you have to have a strategy that really works for you and your style and, and your advantages and, and all those kind of things. So you can't even just copy what somebody else is doing. It really has to work for you. But probably the biggest obstacle is fundraising. I think every reason why uh, entrepreneurs love to work with us were the same reasons why some LPs were not comfortable 
because LPs, I think, prefer people who they think have had uh, the background in venture capital, and they're less comfortable with people who've been entrepreneurs, but that's, of course, why entrepreneurs love us. We definitely had to learn about fundraising, and fundraising for a fund and fundraising for a startup are so different because there's nobody in the LP world who does what we do. Like at APIC Capital, we're looking to invest in brand new companies and take the high risk. And there's not really an equivalent, I think, type of, of, of role in the LP world. I mean, lots of LPs, like say they have an emerging manager program and invest in your like third fund. So that was certainly you know something we had to learn about. And the funny thing about this whole ecosystem is that I think even though there's, there's so many choices and it, it does seem super noisy and there's all these new funds... And certainly, especially early stage, there are people who've been successful who are sort of continually voluntarily graduating themselves out of competing with us and doing what we do and wanting to write those first checks because there's people who've had a $20 million fund or $40 million fund and they did great. And they, it was probably hard to raise that money. And then once they got to their third or fourth fund, now all of a sudden these institutional investors are showing up and offering them a lot of money. And a lot of those folks take it. And then all of a sudden they have a $200 million fund or a $300 million fund. And then they want to write a $3 million check, not a 500K check. So the funny thing is, is that a lot of, there's a few exceptions, but a lot of the folks who've been successful at doing what we've done has sort of voluntarily chosen to sort of do something different. They've raised bigger funds and now they want to sometimes wait. And I guess that's now we, why we have pre-seed. They, there's folks who want to wait, let somebody else do that first million or two million and then come in a bit later when there is some traction and put down that three or four million dollar check. So because of that, I think there sometimes still is an opportunity. And in our case, I think, you know, the thing we worry most about is not competition. So it's it's really just not even knowing about something, you know, a really cool startup that we might not, not invest in. It's not, oh, we found out about it and we didn't get picked because that doesn't really happen. It's really that we just didn't even know. That kind of you know refers to something that it- I, I think about a lot, of, which is when we evaluate a, a venture firm, it's really looking at sourcing, picking ability and winning. And ultimately, it takes a long time to determine if anybody's a really good stock picker. And at the early stage, especially pre-seed C, there's such limited data points that you really don't know. And so it often does come down to quality sourcing, right? Are you seeing deals that are the highest quality within the thesis that you're investing into? And you guys have done a lot. I know Kent has his podcast. You had Founders Den. You've built this massive group of relationships through your operator days and angel days. How do you actually manage all the noise? Because my assumption is, and maybe this is too presumptive, is that you are seeing so much deal flow. And one of the challenges is how do you actually distill down when you have a team of two? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true of everybody. Because, like, if you look at the Y Combinator batch sizes, I mean, just Y Combinator alone is is, is like almost a thousand companies a year. So the total universe of pre-seed startups is probably so many that nobody could probably see them all. So just trying to look at find the needle in the, in the haystack and look at every single piece of hay is probably impossible. We're really trying to focus more on the signal that's that's meaningful for us. So eighty percent of the investments we've made have been sourced by through entrepreneurs in our network, and even though we get a lot of cold deal flow. It's just not something that that we're super excited about. We look at it, but it's rarely things we want to do. And there are disadvantages to that because somebody having the ability to network and get the intro, it does impose certain limitations, but it certainly makes it a lot easier to, you know, to focus on. And I think sourcing and picking are both important. You really can't have one without the other because everybody is going to see a lot of stuff. And if you pick the wrong stuff, 
that's you know you're not going to have a, a great fund. But also, if you also source the wrong stuff and you're not even picking from the, from the good stuff, you're also not going to see a, a, have a great fund for your LPs. So I think they're both important. What we found was that when when we were talking to LPs, they were much more focused on sourcing and deal flow and winning, and much less focused on picking. And I think they're they're both important. And I think the track record and success we have with our previous investments demonstrates our ability to do both. But it was funny that that LPs seemed much, much, much more concerned about sourcing and deal flow and winning and less on picking, even though I think they're they're both very important. And what we found is that a first-time entrepreneur probably does not know every top seed or pre-seed fund, especially since there's a lot of them. And so the idea that they're going to be able to systematically navigate that whole universe and talk to everybody, they might not be able to do that. And then on the other hand, a really experienced entrepreneur, even though that's the kind of person who probably has a better idea or better ability to shop their deal around, a lot of times what they really want to do is is work with people they know and trust. And a lot of times I think an experienced entrepreneur will not talk to a huge number of investors. They will talk to people they have pre-existing relationships with. So I think the idea that every seed and pre-seed fund is seeing every deal is not realistic and probably not true. And one of the things that's happened with us is sometimes entrepreneurs come to us just for advice. They are working some something new, and before they even start fundraising, they just want our advice and feedback on it. And then we're like, well, wait a second, this is actually pretty interesting. <laughs> when are you fundraising? Like, We'd like to invest in this from AP Capital, and that has, has worked out well. Given that you've been at organizations with Nuzzle and Frontier that in many cases had success, obviously there's lot of challenges and hurdles along the way. How do you ensure that your biases that, you know, in some some cases are conscious and unconscious are not going unchecked? Because I I've seen like investors be in the market for, you know, 10, 15 years. And oftentimes these biases come out where they try to apply what's happened before to a current scenario, which is in no way relevant to what's happened in the past. I actually think that a lot of VCs who try to apply the playbook from one of their previous successful companies to a new company sometimes actually make those subsequent companies actually less successful. So we certainly don't want to do that. And everybody has biases. And in fact, one of the reasons why I'm concerned about our reliance on sourcing our deals through entrepreneurs we know is that that is a little bit of an impediment to diversity. And that is something that, that's important to us. But at the same time, we don't pattern match like many VCs do on superficial qualities. So that is not something we do. Our entrepreneurs have to all impress us, but they are different kinds of folks. They're not all the same folks. We want a diverse set of, of entrepreneurs. And I think some of our biasy, biases are more biases based on experience of what works. So like we, we're, I think, for example, we're biased towards entrepreneurs who want to go to market and get real and talk to customers really soon and not stay in stealth a long time. And I think that's, I don't know if you call that a bias, but it, it's definitely a preference, but it's based on, on I think, on what we've learned as entrepreneurs. So I think we definitely, we've seen a lot of, you know, both success and failure, and we, we definitely apply that to how we pick entrepreneurs and how we pick markets and all those kind of things, because we want to learn from our mistakes. And I think we've learned a lot from our successes, but we've also learned a lot from our mistakes. And I think that, you know, that is one of the advantages we have. Yeah, one of the benefits of having a partner, of course, is somebody that can bring an alternative point of view and push your own thinking to what could be a much better decision for the firm. And speaking of decision-making, one of the uh, benefits of a solo GP is that you can move really quickly, you nimble, there isn't 
any complexity around the decision-making process. And what I'd love to hear from you is how you and Kent think about decision-making, whether it needs to be consensus, whether individually you can do non-consensus deals, and then ultimately, how do you get to a point where you both feel comfortable that the decision is right for the partnership? I mean, I think that if you have a venture capital firm with tons and tons of people, I think the decision-making process is probably a lot more complicated than ours. And I think if you go for consensus, it probably you'll miss a lot of great investment opportunities, and it's probably a lot more complicated, and you may have politics. Unfortunately, we have none of that because it's just the two of us, and we've worked together a long time. Apic Capital is the third business that we've built together. So we don't actually disagree a lot. That's not really a problem we have. We're two very different people. Kent grew up in California. I grew up in Canada. My background is technical. His background is on the finance side. But we've both been entrepreneurs, and I think we gravitate to the same kind of entrepreneurs and the same same kind of startups. I think if we wildly uh, differed on what kind of things we're excited about, our partnership would not be as effective. And you know, I think in some big firms, each person is really a silo and they're doing their own deals and they're not really collaborating a lot, even though they might claim that they are. Whereas for Kent, you know, we would never make an investment that we both aren't excited about, and we both help all the companies. But it's also been very seamless because if Kent or I get excited about uh, an entrepreneur. The other person can meet with them the next day, and it's still an extremely fast investment process. So it's not really any slower probably than it would be for, I think, for a single GP, especially since we have a a longstanding partnership and, and it's very seamless for us to work together. How do you think about scaling? I mean, because there are other things outside of investing. And of course, you guys do a lot of community. You work with entrepreneurs pretty deeply. You're taking meetings with folks just to provide advice. Give us a snapshot of how you're spending your time. Our plan is not to scale it too too much. There's some firms that start off small and end up with f- funds that become 10 times the size. Our plan is never to have multi-billion dollar APA capital funds. We want to stay boutique. And there's a lot of very, very successful seed funds that have chosen to stay more on the boutique side. And that's the path we're going to go because that's what we enjoy doing. You know, We like getting involved in, in uh, startups early. We like rolling up sleeves. We like high-risk, high-reward investing. So I think our plan is not to have funds that are wildly more uh, bigger than our previous funds. And I don't think what we do really does scale. It's very much hands-on. It's very much depending on our experience uh, and our network and, and how entrepreneurs connect with us as fellow entrepreneurs. So I don't think it would drastically scale if we hired 20 other people who did not have that entrepreneurial experience. So I don't think we really want to scale it too much. Right now, I think you know, we've raised one fund. We haven't raised a second fund yet, but the the fundraising part for an energy manager is very time consuming and it's very inefficient because as you know, you know, if somebody says, hey, there's a family office, do you want to meet them? We say yes, and we have no idea if it's going to be relevant or not. Whereas if somebody sends us a startup deal, we look at it 99% of the time, we say, this is not a fit for APIC capital. And we don't meet with, with tons and tons and tons of entrepreneurs that we have no chance of, of ending up investing in. And then when we're helping entrepreneurs, that is actually something, it's the part of the job I enjoy the most. It's very important for us because it's how we secure allocations to double down on, on some of our portfolio companies significantly above our parada. But it's it's very efficient as well because I can often do it asynchronously. So, so one of our entrepreneurs wants an intro to executives at three different companies. A lot of times I can just do that via email at 11 p.m. I don't have to spend hours and hours, you know, on Zooms or in person meeting people to do that kind of thing. So, you know, I'd love to be able to have even more time for that. And I think over time as an emerging manager, I think eventually probably the fundraising becomes less of a time suck. But after we've raised our fund too, we might add to the team, but our plan is not to have 
a huge, huge team and have, you know, 20, 30 people working for us. And some of the folks that we admire who've been really successful doing seed or pre-seed investing, some of them have very lean teams, you know, one or two GPs. And, and if they have additional people, you know, not 20 or 30. And I agree that that certainly has been the case for many of the the seed firms out there. Although, you know, the area that I'd like to push on is there have been seed funds that have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And Mike Maples has said, which I think a lot of people agree with, your fund size is your strategy. And so now, you're, you know, as a smaller seed manager, you're competing with some of the firms that have gone bigger and can write bigger checks at the seed, as well as some of those mega funds that are raising a billion, sometimes even more than a billion, and going upstream and, and investing in seed stage companies. How do you think about all of that capital migrating to the seed stage? And as a seed manager that is in that sub $75 million range, how do you think about successfully defending against those levels of competition? I think it's interesting because if you have a $500 million fund that you say is seed, it sounds fairly big to me for seed investing. And I think that's probably more competitive with the the fund that's $150 million because a lot of times the $150 million fund is not going to participate in that first $2 million round that's now called a pre-seed round with zero traction. So APIC Capital might invest in that round. And then what we've seen is sometimes when the companies are doing well, the insiders end up doing a highly oversubscribed extension round. And then after that, it goes to a big fund for an A. Or one of those large firms might end up uh, competing with the seed funds to lead that next seed round. So I think that the $500 million seed fund probably seed fund probably poses more competition to the $150 or $200 million seed fund than it does somebody like APA Capital. And I think it, it is interesting, you know, as Mike Maple said, your fund size is your strategy. We have a founder that we worked with who's an LP in our fund who started a company and he sold that company for $800 million. And that's a fantastic life-changing outcome for an entrepreneur. And if you're a seed investor in, in a company like that, you can do really well. So if, if APA Capital owned 5 to 10% of a $800 million exit, that could return our fund. Now, if your fund is... 10 times the size of ours. If you're a bigger fund, you want to own, you're going to write a bigger check and you're going to own 20%. But you can't own, you can't own 50%. You can't own 100%. You can't own 500%. There's a, there's a limit. So as the funds get bigger and bigger, the ability to return your fund, no matter what portfolio construction you use from even a billion dollar exit is just not there. So I think just mathematically, the, the chance for a fund our size to outperform is so much easier than a fund 10 times our size much less those funds that are 100 times our size. It's just math because the pie has to add up to 100. You cannot, if your fund is 100 times the size of APA Capital, you cannot own 100 times. You cannot own instead of 10%. You can't own 100% or 1,000% of the company. And obviously, you, the founders and the employees have to own some of the company. So it is just math. One of the points that I, I think also probably is true is that many of those bigger funds, if you look at the deployment of those funds, a lot of it is in the follow-on rounds. It's the Series A, Series B, Series C. So many of those funds would make the case, well, we're risk-adjusting down as as the cards turn over for these companies. And a lot of our capital is actually not in that pure early stage. And so the risk dimension is going to be different for a bigger fund. But when you look at it, one of the things that you're doing is you're backing companies at the earliest stages. You're, you're looking at the ownership. And then you are making decisions on which companies to follow on. And it's not going to be all 25 to 30 companies. What is your methodology of deciding when you follow on, especially in an environment that we've been in, where it 
seemingly was the case in 2021, somebody would raise a seed round. Six months later, they'd raise an A at three, four, five X the price with very little tangible progress between the seed and and A. And of course, things have changed and we recognize that. But tell us a little bit of how you navigated that. We have, I think, maybe seven companies that have raised money follow-on money since the the downturn in May. So we're pretty excited about that, that they're that they're managing to do this after the downturn. And we have, I think, six companies. I mean, we've only made 21 investments at a fun one so far, and we've run a pretty concentrated portfolio. So I think we have six companies where we've invested significantly above our pro rata in their subsequent rounds. And we use our judgment and, and decide which ones we have the conviction to do that. And it's not going to be all of the companies. And that's definitely part of our strategy. And it seems to be working well so far. But you know, you always worry about the case where you invest in a company subsequent to that first check and maybe in the Series A. And then, and then you know, if you've put multiple checks as a seed fund and then the company ends up not going well, that would, be, that would obviously be much worse than just losing an initial check because you expect... Mortality in the initial investments, and that's okay. But I also think the idea that the bigger funds coming in later is less risky may not be the case because if you were a really, really big fund, and in 2021 you you invest in a, you know huge checks in a bunch of companies at two billion that are now worth a billion or four billion that are now worth two billion or something like that. I mean, there could be a lot of big losses there. Investing later does not necessarily mean there's no risk. Now, since you focus on early stage investing versus late, let's talk a little bit about how to optimize for return. And an area that is often widely discussed is portfolio construction, how much you do initial versus reserve, the number of companies. And there's so many different avenues people go down. And you know, one avenue is a lot of portfolio companies because you want to get the power loss of so 50 to 100 companies plus. There's more concentrated portfolios or 15, 20 to 30 companies. And then from an initial and reserve standpoint, I've seen everything from 100% initial to 50-50 to 30-70. And I think you're at 50-50. Can you maybe give us a little bit of color on how you arrived at 50-50 and thought, that was the best way to optimize for the best seed stage performance. Well, part of it was that we got a lot of advice from other fund managers, even though many of them have different strategies. And then we also uh, looked at the funds that I am in LPN, and we definitely learned a lot before we did this. A, a lot of what we did was sort of a, a melding of what we thought was sort of industry standard and really just made sense generally, as well as our personal preferences and styles and strategies and what would work for us. And we also, you know, think just like we mentioned, you know, you can't own more than 100% of a company, if there's a company that's raising their first 2 million bucks and you say, well, and they already have some angels and some whatever, and like you say, well, my fund is, is I want to have no reserves and I want to put 2.5 million into those companies. Well, that's not necessarily possible. So I think you also have to be a little bit flexible about how things work, especially adjusted for today. And today, a lot of times what we're seeing is that companies might raise three rounds sometimes with institutional investors before they raise what today we call the Series A. We're conscious of what are the challenges and what are the opportunities. What, what can't you do, but what, what can you opportunistically do and what makes sense in today's funding environment? Yeah, and definitely today we are in a place where follow-on or Series A financing so are more difficult to get done than any time over the last couple of years, 2020 and 21 in particular. And it doesn't seem like that's going to change. And the, you know, the reset, I think many people would view it as incredibly healthy. 
But as you look at some of those breakout companies that you're investing into where they can raise a Series A, one of the challenges for seed funds is not only maintaining pro rata, but for the very best companies, can you increase your check size and get super pro rata in that next round of capital? And I know you've done it many times. To me, it speaks to you developing a relationship with the founder or adding some level of tangible value where they're going to bat for you even when those Series A firms are doing whatever they can to get their ownership. What's made you successful and what really moves the needle for founders from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you do hear a lot of seed funds sometimes talking or blogging about how the big VCs try to crowd them out of even getting their prorata. And we now have had, I think, you know, six times where we've been able to invest significantly above our prorata. I mean, not not even just close to that. Because like when we started our fund, we started investing right after our first close and after COVID had hit. And we didn't even know if we'd be able to raise a fund. A lot of people were just telling us to give up. And so some of those initial checks, they're not huge, and we've put in much bigger checks. So it's clearly like way beyond the parada. But I think the reason why entrepreneurs have given us those allocations is because many of them have said that we're their most useful investor. And it's one of those things because I think every VC on a podcast, you listen to the podcast and it sounds like they just are so wonderful and so helpful. But as as a four-time venture-backed entrepreneur, I think that I found that the the venture uh, industry value add was generally overhyped. And the feedback that we've gotten from the entrepreneurs we work with has definitely been that we are sometimes their most useful investor. And I think that you make 10 fundraising intros or 10 customer intros for somebody, and oftentimes that's enough for, for you to really stand out. And, you know, we like doing it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this at all is because we do, we really love helping entrepreneurs. That's how Kent and I started working together. It's been something we've been doing for a long time, really doing it for free. You know, I was a mentor at Steve Blank's entrepreneurship class at Stanford. I was the top mentor at Techstars and, at, you know, at Founders Den. We didn't even take equity. We we're just helping people for free. So now, you know, I'm concentrating most of that on our portfolio at Apic Capital, but it's something I, I enjoy doing. And, you know, I think everybody says that. I mean, the funny thing I laugh about is, is when VCs say, let me know how I can be helpful. Because I think there's a difference between being helpful, which maybe it means seeming helpful or feeling helpful and actually really helping. And I don't actually say, like, let me know how I can be helpful. I say, what do you need? What do you need help with? Oh, you need this? Okay, we'll get it for you. Well, you're very well positioned to provide that level of insight given you are a multiple-time consumer of venture capital at Nuzzle and Friendster, which actually leads me back to wanting to go back in time and look at that time of Friendster, which I think is such a fascinating case study being before Facebook, being before MySpace. Presumably, there were some interesting parts of that journey that have informed you both in your career and also as an investor. So wanted to get your take on what are the things that most have guided you that you learned during your time at Friendster? Yeah, I think we learned a lot from it. Ken, I think, was was right for recognizing the potential of Friendster so early. And Friendster, unfortunately, as I said, you know, we went through six CEOs in six years, and Friendster should have been a very, very, very successful company. But I think Kent was was totally right in seeing that potential early. And I think I've, we've done that a few times. I mean, I invested in Angelist before it was called Angelist, maybe before crowdfunding was a thing. And I invested in Docker before it was called Docker, and before containerization was a thing. So we've done that multiple times. On the other hand, we 
you've also learned the painful lesson. Being first is not always best. And, and, and some of the best companies, Google is not the first search engine. So we've learned that too. And I think we've learned a lot of very valuable lessons. And I think if we can help an entrepreneur avoid some of the mistakes we've made, that could be worth billions of dollars in their pocket. And I also think that if somebody is lucky enough to to have as much product market fit as Friendster had and to invest, invent something that ends up you know, blowing up, we have gone through that hyper growth, which I think not many investors have personally, like as actually like going from zero to one. We personally have built something that went to over 100 million users. So I think if somebody uh, is fortunate enough to, uh, to be on that kind of wild ride, we could help them with that probably uniquely. But we also, I think, can, can try to help entrepreneurs avoid maybe some of the mistakes that we've made as well. Since we're on the topic of learnings, if there was a piece of advice you would go back and tell yourself when you were starting the firm, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I don't know if there's one single piece of advice. I mean, I think the advice I'd give me if I could travel back in time to the Friendster days was to the same advice that Naval Ravikant blogged about, you know, which is the valuation is temporary and control is forever. And the advice I think I'd give us for raising up a capital would simply be to do what we did, which was not give up, even when, when people were telling emerging managers in 2020 to give up. But I think the, the piece that is common amongst multiple of my experiences that relates to Friendster, relates to some of my investments, and relates to some of the work I did as an entrepreneur and CEO in, in hiring and firing people is actually trusting my instincts about people rather than making decisions based on something else, whether it's somebody's reputation, somebody's fame, references from other people, social proof, other investors. I think every time I got in trouble was when not my instincts were wrong, but when I made the decision based on other factors. Yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a great piece of advice. And uh, Jonathan, this has been a lot of fun. Really excited to uh, you know have had you on the uh, on the uh, on the podcast today. And, and again, congrats on all the success so far with Eight Bit. Thank you. And congrats on the success of the podcast and Allocate. And it was, a, it was really fun doing it. And of course, I'm looking forward to, to seeing you in person again. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jonathan. To learn more about him or 8-Bit, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 